Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elizabeth Mack. Today, I'll be speaking with Arthur Slutsky, MD, on the article, Personalized Ventilation to Multiple Patients Using a Single Ventilator, Description and Proof of Concept, published in Critical Care Explorations. To access the full article, visit ccejournal.org. Dr. Slutsky has served as Vice President of Research at St. Michael's Hospital and as Professor of Medicine, Surgery, and Biomedical Engineering at the University of Toronto in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Welcome, Dr. Slutsky. Do you have any disclosures to report? Uh, thanks, thanks very much, Elizabeth, for that introduction. Uh, there's nothing specific to disclose on this article. I do consult for a couple of companies in relation to ECMO. That's Baxter and Xenios. Thank you so much. Art, do you mind describing the one ventilator, two circuit, or bag-in-the-box model in which there's no contact between the individual circuits for the audience? First of all, um, there's no individual contact on the inspiratory side of the circuits. There is on the expiratory side. You know, I, I would suggest that the, anybody listening to this it would be best if they could pull out the article and look at the figure because I'll explain it, but it is a little bit complex and it's a lot simpler to understand if you have the figure sitting right in, right in front of you. Essentially what this is, is a, you have a ventilator that uh, operates in the pressure control mode and it essentially ventilates, not the patients directly, but it ventilates two bag in the box systems. It could actually be more than two, but you know, for this experiment, um, for proof of concept, we use two. And um, it's, I think the best way to think about this is that each bag-in-the-box system is a ventilator for an individual patient. And if we think about this, if we start sort of in the exhalation phase, you know, usually think of the inhalation, but think, first of all, in the exhalation phase, the patient has got a breath, the patient exhales through the expiratory circuit, and it goes through a peep valve, the, the flow goes through a peep valve, then goes to a T and then enters the, the ventilator about the same location as the exhaled gas from the other patient does. So that's where there's a connection. There's a connection on the exhalation side. During the, the exhalation, what's happening is each bag in the box is being inflated by fresh gas from a separate fresh gas flow. So each circuit would have its own fresh gas flow, which would be a blender. So you can get, the key here is that by having its own blender, and on gas supply, that it's possible to have uh, the FiO2 for each patient completely different. You could have room air for one patient. You could have 100% oxygen for the other patients. So that fresh gas flow is flowing all the time. It enters the during the patient's exhalation. It now enters the bag, and it's filling up the bag for the next inhalation for the patient. So during patient exhalation, the bag is being filled up. And uh, at end exhalation, the, the bag is full or partially full, and uh, inspiration starts. The ventilator starts inspiration, generates a pressure. That pressure goes to, and the flow goes to those the two bag-in-the-box systems. And it then, by increasing the pressure in the box, and there's a, uh, there's a compliant bag inside there, the bag starts to empty and enters the patient's lungs. And obviously, each, each system is completely separate. So in this way, by adjusting the flow rate of the fresh gas flow, you can set the tidal volume for that individual patient. So, for example, if you're using a respiratory rate of 
10 breaths a minute and the flow is, uh, let's say, you know, three liters a minute, you're going to get roughly a tidal volume of 300 mils uh, in that one patient. The other patient can have a gas flow that's 10 liters a minute. I mean, we wouldn't want to use it that high, but it can be as high as you want, essentially. So each patient now is getting their own tidal volume that's different than the other tidal volume of the other patient and not affected by it in any way. On exhalation again now, the flow leaves through the expiratory side, the expiratory limb. Um, the, each circuit has its own PEEP valve, so you can set the PEEP individually in each patient. And then flow on exhalation goes through again through the, uh, through the ventilator, through the exhalation valve. I should point out, they are not completely, completely independent. At, at very high flow rates, because the flows are coming together and going through the um, exhalation valve of the ventilator, there can be some equivalent to auto peep, if you like, because there's this flow. So the peep, the flow on one circuit can impact the peep a little bit on the other circuit, probably a couple centimeters of water, but it's not completely independent. But bottom line is by filling the bag and emptying the bag, you can now have FiO2, as I said, that's different for both patients. You can have a tidal volume that's different for bo both patients, uh, irrespective of the lung characteristics, the compliance of each lung um, doesn't really matter. And you can have a PEEP that's essentially, um, it is different for, for each of the patients. I know it sounds kind of complex. As I said, it's a lot easier if you, if you look at the circuit diagram, um, I think it becomes a little bit clearer. So Art, if you don't mind, uh, please share with us what inspired you to do this interesting work. Obviously, it's very topical and relevant during this time of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, but would love to hear what inspired you. It's, uh, well, what inspired me was uh, the, the, the people around me, uh, to be quite honest. You know, the, you know, Jay and uh, Joe Fisher and other people on this, on the, uh, the paper did, did the work. So this this was not you know art slutsky doing everything quite the opposite this was all these people doing the the work and everybody coming up with innovative ideas it, it was triggered this you know um some people have thought about something similar in the past but there's no question that this was triggered by by the pandemic by the concern that we're not going to have enough ventilators you know i have a number of colleagues in italy and in China and Spain, and you know, over the months, as this like you know, felt like a tsunami, right? Because you could see it sort of coming from afar. But in talking to them, it was clear that they were going to be on the precipice of you know, maybe not having enough ventilators to to take care of patients. And in Italy, that sort of actually happened. So that's what that's what really brought this to the fore for this whole team to to think about and to try to come up with a solution that that might help our patients. You know, we, we had a little discussion just before this about, you know, third world countries, and I hadn't really thought about this. Well, we thought about it, but just sort of peripherally, I would have thought, you know, maybe this could be used in third world countries. But but as you said, Elizabeth, uh, you know, with your work in, the, in third world countries, that this might actually, could actually be used. Uh, actually, be interesting to hear you yeah, tell us about uh, what, what, what you found when you were in Vietnam and elsewhere in terms of the problems of not having enough ventilators. Yeah, um, Art, thank you for that. So as someone interested in global health, I've spent some time around the globe in developing areas uh, with a lot of incredible people and patients and 
Uh, one of the things that I have seen, not during a pandemic, just uh, during routine busy times, is uh, the occasional patient having to be bagged by their parent um, or perhaps two patients on a home ventilator or hospital ventilator. And so I was particularly moved and interested by your study. So from an infection prevention standpoint, what concerns or potential concerns exist uh, when two patients may share this uh, proof of concept ventilator? You, you talked about what, what the patients may or may not share and where the connections, uh, where they connect within the expiratory circuit, but if you don't mind, just share um, as we think forward about whether this could be used in humans. Well, I think, you know, the uh, important thing is you have to have the, the same infection control measures, of course, uh, for, for as you're dealing with a single patient. And I guess there'd be a temptation when you're, when you're monitoring or, or uh, the medical staff, nursing staff, respiratory therapists are uh, monitoring these patients, you're to right beside each other. So it'd be a temptation not to take the same precautions. Uh, from the circuit itself, um, as I said, the circuit is only connected on on the exhalation side relatively distally. The inspiratory lines are completely separate. So I think that the potential for infection is uh, markedly decreased. Uh, I'm not an infectious disease expert, so I, and I can't say that there's no chance that you know, a little virus can track all the way back on the expiratory side from one to, to, to get back to the patient. But I think that because the inspiratory limbs are completely separate, that, that that should be much less likely to happen. You know, one could argue that probably safest to have either two patients who don't have COVID-19 lungs or two patients who do, like, you know, have some sort of matching. Although I, I think and, and hope that the amount of contamination would be minimized because of uh, where the connections are on the uh, on the exhalation side. And of course, as I'm talking about, that's that's contamination through the circuits. There's still, as I started, you know, contamination possible from one patient to the other by just the medical staff moving back and forth, et cetera. But that that's not a that's not unique to this circuit. But it is unique, I guess, if you're using a single machine to ventilate, you know, a couple of patients. You know, again, the uh, the interesting part here is the ventilator itself doesn't ventilate the patients directly. It's ventilating this bag-in-the-box system. So any uh, infectious agents uh, that are in the inhalation side on the ventilator, they don't get to the patient. They go, they get to the, the bag-in-the-box system, which is quite a bit different. The other thing I, I actually forgot to mention, which I think uh, I should in terms of the system that's interesting about it, is the the ventilator is uh, operated in pressure control mode, so it's a pressure mode of breathing, but the ventilation to the patient is, th themselves is actually like volume control because you've got a constant flow going through this fresh gas flow that I mentioned, and it's interrupted X number of times. So what happens during each of those breaths is you get a fixed volume that actually gets into the patient you know, subtracting away the gas compression, et cetera, that occurs in the tubing. So the ventilator itself is pressure control, but this is closer on the patient. If the patient you had, did measurements of the patient and didn't know where the ventilator was, you'd say, hey, this sort of looks like volume control, which is uh, an interesting twist on this, uh, on this system. Very interesting. Thanks. So you mentioned monitoring. 
How would you troubleshoot alarms with this system for those of us that are not engineers? <laughs> well, you know, uh, one of the issues with using this is you can't use too many of the alarms on the valid. You can use one alarm, which we did, and that is if you looked at the exhaled volume, you could set the uh, the exhaled volume in the ventilator to be equal to the, sort of the exhaled volumes of the sum of the two. And if one patient got disconnected, for example, um, that the ventilator would pick that up and set the alarm. But other than that, the, the, the alarms for the ventilator are, are not that helpful. You have to have alarms and monitoring that's independent for each, uh, each patient. And in a lot of hospitals, that is gonna be possible. They have extra sort of a alarm sets that could look at pressures. You could even measure flow. You could measure exhaled carbon dioxide. Uh, you could have an oximeter on the patient. So you do all those things to monitor that specific patient. That wouldn't be possible in, in well, probably not possible in third world countries. I doubt that all that hardware is sort of available. And then when something goes wrong, you have, you have to be at the you know bedside and, and look at where things can go wrong. And usually where things can go wrong is where there are valves or deep uh, valves or T-connectors where things can occlude. Uh, that's what you'd be looking for. One of, the, one of the important things in putting this together, I think it's really important to put the circuit together well before you actually need it. You know, it's like, in times of crisis, is not the time to say, oh my God, I just read this article and I'm going to go and put this together and five minutes later, use it on my first patient. I think that that's, that's a mistake. One has to think about it ahead of time, put the system together, run it, run it as if there's a patient there, ideally with a test lung, because things that can go wrong, if you put the one-way valves in the wrong way, that's clearly a problem, right? And that's better to find that out on a test bench than the first patient you try. So I think a lot of the um, monitoring or troubleshooting is try to troubleshoot before you have a problem. Um, in other words, before you actually put it on the patient. That's not to say things won't won't happen, but at least you're much better off and much better off to have practiced with this, tried it a number of times before you actually do it on the first uh, couple of patients. Thanks for that. So it sounds like the optimal conditions would be obviously suboptimal, but, but uh, the situation in which you don't have enough ventilators, but have adequate staffing and monitoring to be able to serve as that additional layer uh, for these patients. I think that's a great summary. That, that's, that's absolutely correct. Gotcha. This is not a panacea. This is not, you know, um, put the two patients, set up the circuits, put the two patients and, and walk away. That's not, absolutely not how to, how to use this. It's interesting, though, one of the things we tested, and it's in the paper, is um, if, if the patient, you know, patient one or patient two, gets disconnected from the ventilator at the endotracheal tube, it has essentially no impact on the other patient. So, and that's not true if you just split the, split the flow, split the, the pressure from a single ventilator to two patients directly, because if one, you know, if one gets disconnected from the endotracheal tube, the ventilators essentially, you know, it takes the path of least resistance or path of greatest compliance and ventilates the room air, room, the room. Here, if it's disconnected at the patient, that's not going to happen because the ventilator still uh, ventilates the bag in the box. So if I'm understanding correctly, compliance of one patient's lung does not directly or appreciably impact delivery to the other lung. Is that 
or the other patient. Is that fair? That's correct. It has essentially no impact. And we, we tried that in the test lungs with pretty divergent uh, compliances. The, the test lung was set at a compliance of 10 mils per centimeter of water in one of them and 50 in the other. And actually, when you think about the disconnection, the disconnection means the, the compliance of that patient, the compliance is essentially infinite, right? Right. Because, you know, you've got, you're ventilating with one circuit, you're ventilating the room. It's got a huge compliance and it, and it essentially had, you know, little impact, no measurable and no systematic impact on the other, on the other patient's uh, flow. And that's because each circuit is pretty separate system. That's really incredible. Yeah. It's, it's hard to visualize it. I think, I think you're best to sit down. Uh, anybody listening to this, just to repeat, pull out the circuit diagram, which is you know, pretty straightforward from the paper. And, you know, uh, when you're listening to this, I think that would be, that would be most helpful. Has anything like this been used in humans, Art? So we have we have not tried it in humans yet. We have tried it in uh, in a couple of pigs, and what we did to to, sh- to look at the different compliance between two pigs, we used a pig that was I think ten kilos and the other pig was around forty kilos. So the compliance of one is about four times the other, and it seems to work extremely well. Um, that's not the same though as using it in sick patients for you know days on end when all sorts of things can happen that you may not think of in the you know in the animal lab or on the bench the mucus secretions or fluid in the liquid or lots of things like that. So we're we're planning to do some of those experiments. You know, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we don't want to use it in our first two patients where we actually need it for those first two patients. We'd like to try it beforehand under really controlled conditions where we're really, really careful. But um, it hasn't been used as yet in, uh, in, in humans. Art, would you recommend to other centers to try to build something like this uh, with c- the collaboration of their innovation, research, engineering teams uh, in preparation for potential scarce resource allocation? I think, you know, it, it, you know, that's clearly up to each center. I don't want to make it sound like they have to do what, like we did. But, but I do think if, if they're at all concerned about uh, the potential needs, you know, if they think they're going to run out of ventilators, essentially, then it, I think it, it's not a bad idea to sort of practice this. Most of the equipment, uh, pieces and parts we found in the hospital without having to order it specially, but you, you might have to order some valves, deep valves. So I think if you're even thinking about using it, it's, it's a good idea to try and set it up ahead of time. We've got on the website and uh, the supplementary material, we have sort of a very detailed description of how to put this together. What, you know, first of all, the first page is sort of a list of parts, and then there's pictures and step-by-step about how to put this, uh, these circuits together. We're actually also going to put up, and I don't know actually if it'll be on the society's website, a video of how we uh, set this up as well. So I think that if anybody is interested in doing that, we'll provide as much support as we can to try and make it uh, make it happen. Great. Anything else you'd like to share about your work? I think you know it's it's and, and we ended off the paper this way. You know I've been doing research for quite a while, and I can't you know you, almost every paper you publish or anything you do, you think, boy, I hope someone uses that because it's sort of uh, you know it, it, everybody thinks their own work is interesting. Here, other than 
I hope that no one ever has to use it. You know, I, I sort of uh, view this as a bit of an insurance policy. Hopefully, we'll have enough ventilators around. Hopefully, we won't need them. Hopefully, this uh, this pandemic will come to an end. It's not going to happen very shortly, but it, it comes to an end, and hopefully, we'll need the ventilators. As you mentioned, um, you know, the use in third world countries might be uh, required, uh, but it's one of these things that I hope never gets needed, and maybe it's just a great physiological exercise, uh, because I think it is a cute way of doing things, this uh, bag-in-the-bottle system, which, which allows isolation. So I think that's, uh, that's probably how a reasonable way to, to end this and say that uh, it, it should work, and hopefully it'll never have to work. Great. Thank you so much for your team's contribution uh, to, to science and to patient care and wishing you the best throughout the pan- pandemic and beyond. Thank you so much. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Elizabeth Mack. Elizabeth H. Mack, MD, MS, FCCM, is a professor of pediatrics and chief of pediatric critical care at Medical University of South Carolina Children's Health in Charleston, South Carolina, USA. Dr. Mack received her Bachelor of Science and Medical Degrees from the University of South Carolina. She completed her residency at University of South Carolina Palmetto Health and her fellowship at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. She also completed a Master of Science degree with a focus on epidemiology and biostatistics at the University of Cincinnati. Currently, she serves as chair of the American Academy of Pediatrics section on critical care and is past chair of SECM's Current Concepts in Pediatric Critical Care course. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants, and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members, or that of the podcast commercial supporter.